Well, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation, uh, we're in chapter 11. Can we turn that down a little? Thank you. Uh, just to remind us where we are in the book of Revelation. So we're in the middle of a section that seems like it's been going on for a long time. Um, not that trumpets are wearisome. Not at all. Never. But we've, uh, for, for a while, we've been in the midst of exploring John's vision of seven trumpets, which each subsequently unleashed terrible plagues upon the earth. And just to sort of recap uh, the, the flow of the trumpets and where we are when we reach the end of chapter 11. The first trumpets, uh, you'll remember, we talked about mirrored the plagues that God unleashed upon the Egyptians during the Exodus. Um, and we had things like destructive hailstorms, water turned to blood, um, waters becoming embittered and deadly, unnatural darkness falling across the earth. And these first four trumpets, again, we saw unleashed horrible consequences upon the earth uh, with um, vegetation being burned up, sea creatures being destroyed, humanity even perishing. And as bad as those first four trumpet blasts were, the, at the end of chapter 8, an eagle announces, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. So these last three trumpets are identified as three woes. Uh, they're set apart as a unit. And in chapter 9, uh, we looked at the first two of these woes. Um, which again, now un unleash horrible creatures from the abyss, uh, creatures that combine elements of, of horses and scorpions and locusts, uh, just horrible little critters. Um, and we saw at the end of chapter 9 this d horrible description of despite all this horror from these first six trumpets, uh, humanity that survives does not repent. So we've had this sort of series of escalating destructions unleashed upon the earth. And at the end of the first six of those, we have an unrepentant humanity. And then we have a pause. You know, we turn to chapter 10, maybe expecting that we would have the seventh trumpet and finish the cycle. But there's this parenthesis. Um, and in this long pause, we saw that the theme of this pause was God's preserving his witness uh, uh, in the midst of these judgments. God preserving a testimony. And we saw this first with the commissioning of John, or recommissioning of John, as this prophet who consumes a, skull, a scroll that's sweet in his mouth, but it's judgment, so it's bitter to the stomach. And then uh, two weeks ago in chapter 11, we saw the description of two faithful witnesses who testify, who witness in the midst of the great city, a great city who hates them and seeks to destroy them, but they're preserved for a time. But then ultimately uh, that hatred kills them, uh, and it's described as the entire earth rejoices over the death of these witnesses. 
who were then raised from the dead to earth's terror and rise into heaven. And we talked about uh, in that week before Easter how fitting it was that during Easter week we get this description of the witnesses' career literally mirroring the career of Christ, that they are, in a sense, imitating Christ in that they ministered for three-plus years, they died, but then God rose uh, um, rose them to new life, and they ascended into heaven. So, after that long pause, today, finally, we get to the end of chapter 11, we find the seventh trumpet. So let me uh, pick up our reading um, with uh, verse 14, which sort of serves as the bridge to, to take us back to uh, where we are in the midst of these woes and trumpets. So, Revelation chapter 11, I'll start in verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints. And those who fear your name, both small and great, for, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. Uh, let's turn to the Lord and ask him to send his spirit to uh, instruct us from his word this morning. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do worship and praise you. And we praise you that you are sovereign over history and that you are bringing all things to their good and perfect end. Lord God, as we study these words today, we ask that you would give us insight in how you would call us, your people, your church, to faithfully testify to who you are and to your plan for mankind. Help us to be faithful witnesses who persevere even to the end. And help us long for the day where we see the consummation of your long-promised heavenly kingdom, and that you have prepared a place for us to participate in that kingdom, that this will be a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests ministering before your heavenly throne, even as we've seen it shown before us this day. Help us, Lord God, to have hearts that long to praise you as we see those in heaven praise you uh, here in Revelation 
and who are even praising you now. Help us use our imaginations to stir us into action for your kingdom. We ask it in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so seven trumpets, increasingly bad. The last three called three woes. So we get our seventh trumpet sounded here in verse 15. Does this seventh trumpet blast seem woeful? So seven trumpets, last three or three woes. Here we get the seventh trumpet blast. We get described the effects of it in the verses. Why woe? I mean, we could see why five and six. Well, you know, I'll never forget Jay Wanek's brother who was visiting during one of those weeks. Yeah, Revelation was just what I thought it was. Really scary. Five and six were, he was right. Really scary. Uh, frightening image. What do you think of the seventh one? Doug? Okay, so it's woe of what's coming. And, um, and I want to seize on something Doug said, and we'll come to the latter part, uh, the judging part in a minute. But uh, the way it, it, it begins, this emphasis on the, the coming of Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. Why would Christ's kingdom be described as a woe? It's not the typical way we think of Christ's kingdom. Um, again, to sort of think of why would Christ's kingdom be woe? And does this woe seem, and again, we've sort of seen these woes, they've been escalating. Is this woe anticlimactic or is it climactic? James wants to speak. <laughs> mm -hmm. So this isn't the end. The seventh trumpets. Okay. All right. That's that's uh, that's sometimes how people interpret it. Just like sometimes people interpret the chapters following the seventh seal as the content of the seventh seal. Um, some 
sometimes. I want to argue that uh, chapter 11 ends the cycle. And I, I argue it because of the phrase at the end of verse 19. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heaven, heavy hail. That was the same sequence we had at the end of the seven seals. And it's going to be the same sequence we're going to have again at the end of our seven bowls. So usually that phrase in Revelation signals um, the completion of a cycle. So that's why I want to separate 11 from 12. It, it, while acknowledging it could be that 12 further explains what's going on. Um, but I like, or I want us to think about this idea of, uh, you know, again, what sort of uh, Doug alluded to, that the coming of this kingdom is absolutely terrifying to those who are subject to it, uh, who haven't um, bowed their knee to this king. Yeah, Mary. Yet, this is it. You know, those other uh, trumpets, you know, we always saw that kind of um, uh, a portionality with it. You know, a third, a fourth, it struck down. It was always sort of partial. And you always sort of saw, um, even with the end of the sixth one, it's sort of this, this uh, with this discussion of they're not repenting. Um, they're clinging to their idolatry. They're clinging to to um, sexual immorality. They're clinging to their sin, and they're being judged for their lack of repentance. Here, the purpose of this one isn't to produce repentance. They're, you know, this is the final one. This is it. Finito. There is no other chance post this one. Um, you know, this is... And, you know, as they sing about in, in this doxology we get, this is the, the final judgment has come. There is no further attempt or no further um, uh, room to attempt to uh, justify oneself in God's presence. Yeah, Mike, you had your hand.
Yeah, and I really like what you, how you described it. It's the, you know, we, you know, especially we in the Reformed tradition assert God's sovereignty, God's in complete control now, God rules now, all nations are subject, and, you know, God's directing them now. But that's, in a sense, is invisible to us. Um, and what we're talking about is the visible reign of Christ, where all opposition will cease. So it's this move where God's uh, rule, which is, uh, you know, we recognize as, you know, members of his kingdom, uh, but other people do not acknowledge it. But there's going to be this moment where everyone visibly acknowledges Christ's rule and reign. Yeah, Chris. trust in is gone. You know, everything you think is firm and real is shown to be uh, momentary. It's, it's created and now it's been uncreated. And now uh, those unrepentant uh, earth dwellers see the creator, <laughs> see what is real, and they're absolutely terrified at the prospect. Um, they're, they're absolutely undone. You know, again, it's, it's, uh, I think as we see it, I mean, what could be more woeful? <laughs> you know, it's all right. So, you know, these horrible creatures are plaguing me and they're starting to kill people. Those are woeful. <laughs> everything, everything I put my trust on and rely on being gone. And now I see myself as I truly am, which is subject to God's eternal judgment which is now. How woeful that is. Yeah, Pat. I mean, no, his memory is completely, and his judgment is just, and 
to stand before God without Christ's Christ righteousness clothing you would be absolutely horrifying. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, again, not, and we can talk about when we get to 12 and 13, you know, maybe that is a continuation, but I think just for now, to think about the fact that the coming of Christ's kingdom, the blast of the seventh trumpet, is the ultimate woe upon humanity. Uh, to, to sort of think about um, uh, the coming messianic kingdom. This is, you know, think about it. This is what has been promised all along. And uh, uh, flip with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 7. Because Daniel uh, here, so he, he has this vision of four beasts which represent kingdoms, and then the final beast has these kinds of horn, horns, crazy horns that represent little kingdoms. Um, but at the end of the book, um, or the end of chapter 7, uh, uh, when Daniel asks for uh, an interpretation of the vision, uh, this is what he, he receives, starting in verse 23. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall rise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given to, into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. And then here, but the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdoms, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. So, I mean, here we're getting this picture of this coming everlasting kingdom where all opposition ceases. All other rebellious kingdoms come to an end. And I think that's the same picture we're getting here in Revelation 11. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. Just as Daniel describes the defeat of the angel kingdoms of the world in the inauguration of, of this eternal kingdom, so we see the end of history being described in similar terms. Um, the nations are ceasing to rage in the face of God's judgment and wrath. And notice the response to the seventh trumpet in heaven. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped. So we have two kinds of reactions. This woe from, that falls on unrepentant earth and worship by the saints in heaven. You know, what a contrast. All right, a little quiz. Don't worry, it's fill in the blank. So how would you complete this phrase? Who was, who is, and who is to come? 
Look at verse 17. Who is and who was. Why no is to come? Yeah, he's there. <laughs> the kingdom has come. And, you know, I often think of that phrase as, you know, this sort of description of who God is. God has always been, God is now, God will always be. But John's presenting it here in the phrase, sort of frame of, of human history. And that the is to come is, he's coming. And now he's come. Um, it, and again, it's, it's not to incorrect to think God's outside of time, God's outside of history. But what John's emphasizing here is God is also in time and in history. You know, we're not deists that think that God created this great plan for the world. It has a beginning, middle, and end. He wound it up and let it run till it runs its end course. That's not the God we believe in. We do believe that God had, has a plan for history and has designed it to move from beginning to middle to end. But we also believe that God is engaged in time, that God is in, in time. And so we see that in timeness, I think, in the absence of this phrase, is to come. Because Christ is coming, Christ is going to rule. And that rule, once inaugurated, we don't look forward to his coming anymore. Because he's come. So we're, we're again, that, we can look in future chapters 12 and 13 until we get to the next series of seven, is that part of this seven. But I want to sort of emphasize just sort of how consummate these verses are at the end of chapter 11. You know, you know we hit this, there is no more to come. Christ's reign has been established, and everybody is falling down, worshiping. So what are some things that, as we look at this doxology, uh, this song of praise that these uh, elders on their thrones lift up to God, what are some of the actions we see in this? What are, and we've talked about some of them, but... What do we see going on? What do they sing about? What's praiseworthy? Yeah, just as we saw, and uh, I'm glad you, there's several things I'm glad you mentioned there. The kingdom of saints. You know, remember the end of that, that Daniel 7. You know, who's ruling that kingdom? It's the, the saints are ruling that kingdom. And notice the participation here. These elders, they're sitting on thrones. I mean, thrones mean rule. I mean, they're already participating in the, this, this kingdom that's being established forever. Um, and then the other thing, uh, the dis for destroying the destroyers of the earth. 
Uh, there, there, we can talk about there are tons of allusions in the song to the Old Testament. But there I think he, um, uh, there's a really clear parallel to a description Jeremiah gives of the destruction of Babylon. You know, he describes the end of Babylon as, uh, uh, so this is Jeremiah 51, 24 and 25. I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, destroyed mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. So here, this mountain that's destroyed the whole earth is in itself being destroyed. I will stretch out my hands against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. Um, so the, the, this uh, vindication uh, of the church, the, the ones who've been the destroyers are now themselves destroyed. This, this kind of what, uh, just as we saw with the, the plagues, you know, Pharaoh's own, own curse coming back on, on his country on his nation, on his own household. You know, the people who seek to destroy now themselves are destroyed. Good. What else strikes you about this hymn? This doxology. <laughs> James again. <laughs> Yeah, and the picture of rule we've been given uh, so far in this book, the picture of conquest we've given, given, it's a very difficult picture of how the church conquers. You know, they conquer through blood, through sacrifice. They don't conquer by means of the sword, but by being slain. Remember that earlier picture we had of Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah, who's a slain lamb, uh, whose wounds are clearly visible. You know, slain yet standing. And that's the picture we've been given of the church up to this point. But now, I, I think you're absolutely right to, to sort of think about what does it mean to rule without sin? Without, you know, to sort of think of, you know, rule in, as we understand it in our world usually involves the exercise of power. And power has to be exercised because of sin. Uh, you know, they won't listen to me, so I've got to make them listen. Um, you know, that's so often the way we think of rule, the exercise of, of power, of coercion, making someone else do something. But here we're being given a vision of rule, again, in the absence of sin, in the absence of all opposition, of all desire to oppose this rule. Man, what does that look like? Uh, 
where you're ruled and everybody absolutely wants to be ruled by this king. This king who sacrificed himself for us. Wow. I mean, that, again, to sort of think about how different this coming kingdom is from all other kingdoms. And you know, notice how Daniel sort of used that language. This kingdom, it's it is going to be very different from every other kingdom you've ever experienced. And as we look at the Old Testament to think of, again and again, that's the king they've been longing for. Um, they're longing for that king to rule. And um, as we've been studying Matthew, I, I see, I think we've often been seeing the rule Christ is establishing is not the rule they expected. They expected rule in the terms of their world. Someone who's going to come and step on the Romans and then, you know, he'll be in charge. Whereas this rule is to be stepped on to the Romans in order to establish a kingdom that's eternal not a temporal kingdom like those we've seen in human history. Yeah, that we've, uh, and, and I'm, I'm really glad you pointed that out, because again, um, maybe it's the way the first trumpets, I mean, it's been judgment, 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 judgment. And here, slipped in in this little doxology is reward. Um, and it, it's stuck, again, in the middle of judgment. You know, you've got judgment before it, you've got judgment after it, but right there in the middle, there's reward for this faithful service. And that kind of service is going to be um, uh, pointed out repeatedly in coming chapters. Um, just to, for example, just because I it, like highlighted, and it's not highlighted because I didn't highlight in the church's Bible. Um, but it just sort of jumped out at me, but I knew it was there. Um, the end, or in the middle of chapter 13, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That's going to be the repeated kind of refrain in these coming chapters. Endurance, exercising your faith, being a faithful witness. In a sense, that's been the call we've seen for the church throughout, from those early seven letters to the last chapter with sort of this emphasis on, on witnessing, being, um, uh, being imitators of Christ in their witness to a world that seeks to kill and destroy those faithful witnesses. And that's going to be the, re the repeated call. And here we're being shown an end where there will be reward for that.
Yeah, and, uh, I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned that because to think about, again, we get another sort of pointer forward in this to the very end of this book. Because um, here we have, in verse 19, God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Um, later on, the book ends with this declaration, the temple's gone. You know, there, the altars is gone. Because those are things, you need those things in order to be in God's presence. In this heaven, this new heavens and earth, there is no longer any need for the mediation of blood. Um, there's no longer for a veil to be in the temple, separating the holy of holies from everybody else. There's no longer this wall um, uh, preventing the unclean from approaching the clean. Uh, we won't have to be like Isaiah you know, saying, I, how can I speak? You know, I'm a man of unclean lips, and his lips have to be cleaned. He'll, we'll be able to be in the presence of God and praise without having to have that praise um, clarified, purified, made holy. That, again, that is an amazing picture. Yeah, done. Very same consequences. Lightning, thunder, uh, earthquake, darkness, those kinds of things. Yeah. Presumably, they prepared the pair, things back, and then when the temple was destroyed, you don't know what happened to the ark, but now, now it makes another appearance. But it's, it's, it's I, don't, I think it's, to me, it's interesting that we have these two times where the ark could be seen by everybody, accompanied by same kinds of yeah, and, and just one uh, historical clarification. So the ark actually disappeared with the first destruction of the first temple. So nobody's seen the ark since the Babylonians carted it off. But you're absolutely right to point to Christ. I mean, because just as, as yeah, just as Pastor McGuire talked about in his, his uh, sermons, uh, both on Good Friday and on Easter, um, sort of talking about that moment where the veil, this you know huge, thick, heavy curtain separating uh, the holy of holies from from even the priests that minister in that temple is shorn. Um, Good question. I don't know what they put in the second temple in the Holy of Holies, but the yeah, but but um, but there's this. Uh, um, it's not in the Old Testament. Um, it's in, I think it's in one of the Maccabees. I can't remember which one. Um, sorry, I'm not well versed in the Apocrypha. Uh, but there's this, and it's in some other Jewish writings about. Um, the the end of the of the age being a restoration of the ark, um, so there is this kind of in Jewish tradition this sort of longing again for the ark. Um, why would they long for the ark? What does the ark mean? Yeah, the presence of God. The earth. 
Yeah, every time we see thunder, earthquake, you know, darkness, God is present. I mean, you think of the Exodus and the mountain. You, you think of, um, uh, you know, uh, manifestations at Jesus' death. Um, this is a, these are the physical accompaniments of God's presence. Yeah, another great um, picture of that is, let's see if I wrote it down, did I? Yes, uh, the Song of Moses, um, uh, Exodus 15, 13 to 18. Uh, we don't have to turn there, I'll, I typed it out so you can just, uh, I'll read it to you. So this is sort of describing the um, what's going to happen to all the kings of Canaan. But again, sort of like we saw the Exodus event, writ large now in, in the plagues of these trumpets. I think you know we see the same thing, the judgment upon these nations and then the establishment of God's eternal rule. Uh, so Song of Moses, this is the part um, 13 to 18. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So you know the Exodus is moving people out of captivity into the dwelling place of God. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you've purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Um, again, I think it's a, you know, I think you're right to absolutely go to Exodus 19 and this vision of the kingdom of priests and the establishing of the God's eternal reign. Um, and it's the way we've seen, especially in these trumpets, the Exodus mirrored, but now it's writ large. It's not Pharaoh, it's the forces of evil in the entire world that are being brought now. Yeah. Throughout the Exodus account, you know, uh, holy nation, these, these guys, <laughs> holy nation, us, um, but a nation that's, that is now absolutely, totally, forever holy, uh, forever now in the presence of God. There is no more, the temple is open. There's no more need to close it off. God's, the, the symbol of God's presence is open because God is present. Um, you know, and later on the book ends, again, to sort of look where we're going with this description of, you know, there is no temple because God is right there and everybody is in God's presence eternally. Wow. What a picture.
Yeah, and that's the absolute right phrase to use, I think, there. It's, it's already, we're already a kingdom of priests. We already are a holy nation. But there's also this aspect, it's not yet, you know, it's not yet the way it will be uh, forever. Again, it's the way we acknowledge Christ reigns now. But then we also sing Jesus shall reign. Um, and it's not that we're incorrect in doing so. It's the, the both and. It's he reigns now, but there's part of his reign that is yet still to come. And I don't know why I'm holding the balloon bug high in the air. Um, I don't know. It's empty now. I've drained it. Because um, there have been times I've done that, and it's been like, oh, shower. <laughs> but what a picture. Uh, again, um, I, I, I know I've got sort of a weird view of, of Revelation. I don't see it as a chronology sort of um, advancing the end times. I, I see it more as sort of going up a, a lighthouse, sort of a spiral staircase, and you, he comes back to things he's touched on earlier. So, you know, so I, I, I think he's sort of like halfway up the lighthouse, and now he's showing the end again. And later on, he's going to go farther up in the lighthouse, and he's going to have a more expansive view of the end. So it's so I don't see it as sort of you know here's point A, here's point B, and it's all sort of a steady march to the end. I see it more as kind of he's marching to the end, but he's coming back. Um, so to sort of think about you know uh, to to sort of see it as He's having vi various visions of how this end is coming, and we always get to the same place, which is the eternal rule of God being established. And finally, we have a kingdom of priests. Finally, we have a holy nation. Finally, we have uh, uh, the ability to be in God's presence without veil, without the need for covering. Yeah, we, we so as we cycle back again, you know, it's he's getting these glimpses, uh, and again, I. I don't know why I was thinking about this. Maybe because it's times um, we we one one spring break we did sort of lighthouses in North Carolina tour, and the kids were four and six at the time. So you know, getting a a four year old to climb however many hundred steps, you know, but every now and then there would be a window. And that window would be a little higher up than the other. So you'd pause. You'd stop at this landing. You look out the window. And it's sort of, it is this, this glimpse to encourage you. I mean, it is a long way up that White House, <laughs> to those lighthouse stairs. It's a long climb. There is no air conditioning. It's stuffy. You know, it's hot. Uh, you're sweating. The Bunker Hill Monument was a similar experience. Um, you know, but you, you know, it's, you get visions along the way. And then at the top, you get the reward. You know, why you've climbed all this way. You, know, you get this, you know, you get the panorama. Um, and I've been thinking of that as sort of the analogy for, for it, you're absolutely right. It's like we get these glimpses along the way for what we see in the next chapters is this need for the saints to be encouraged, this need to, to, um, to give people these visions so that they persevere to the end, that they continue 
in a world that might end their life, um, that seeks to end their life, that might require their life as the cost of their service to their king. Uh, so, you know, which is, again, why I think this, the, the, why, as we think about the purpose of the book, um, to go back to the very, very beginning, we're getting this picture to imagine heaven, um, to see the consummation of all history, so we can live now. Um, it's not, you know, just so we have a roadmap to the end times. It's so that we can live faithfully and persevere in the presence, uh, in the present, uh, because of the presence of our King and the coming presence of our King. All right, let me close this in prayer. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for these visions you gave to your servant, John. I confess I'm often befuddled by some of the pictures that I've given here, by, um, by the flow of the narrative as it uh, has breaks and trying to figure out how things uh, are moving forward as the, the visions unfold. But I thank you for the encouragement this book gives to us. For the visions that you give us of your reign. We acknowledge its presence now, but we long for the day it is established and all opposition ceases. We long for the day that we can stand before the king. We acknowledge the king's presence here now, even as you promised where two or three are gathered in your name. You are present. We know you are here with us now. But we long for the day where we stand before you and see you face to face without veil, without covering. As a holy people, a kingdom of priests, forever ruling and praising you, our God and our King. Help us persevere. Help us strive to achieve that you've won for us, as Paul says. Help us reach out for the reward you've won for us. Fill us with your spirit that we might be witnesses, faithful witnesses to this world to the very end. We ask this in the name of our King Christ. Amen.